0: hello and welcome to ask matt i'm eugene cordero professor of meteorology and climate science at san jose state university i'm also founder and director of green ninja i'm here with matt delacio geology professor from cal state northridge national ngss expert and one of the chief authors of the 2016 california science framework the format of this podcast is that i ask matt questions about science science education and the next generation science standards and we'll all learn something more about science education and how to make this transition to NGSS easier and more rewarding for everyone. If you have any of your own questions, just send them to info at and I'll share them with Matt in a future episode. So let's get started. Hey Matt, nice to see you again.
1: Ah, good to see you.
0: So I noticed the front page of your LA Times on Saturday and it said in big letters, California's climate apocalypse, fires, heat, air pollution, And with the subheading, the calamity is no longer in the future, it's here and now. And although the global pandemic has focused much of our attention on our personal and communal health, climate change hasn't gone away. And this last few weeks have reminded everyone that with continued emissions of greenhouse gases, our world will continue to see more disasters that affect our lives. In today's podcast, we'll share thoughts about the science of climate change, and then we'll turn our attention to how to use this topic in our classroom. So, Matt, if your neighbor asked you to explain, you know, what is going on with the weather, how would you explain our current situation?
1: Global weirding. I really like that phrase. It's uh, from a climate scientist, Catherine Hayhoe, uh, and she describes everything as, as, uh, as getting a little bit weirder. And it has to do with the fact that we've pumped so much extra energy into our climate engine uh, that it's just doing things that it never did before and uh, getting a little bit amped up. A little, everything's a little bit more aggressive, more wind, more, more heat, more, more everything.
0: Yeah. And do you think, how, how do you think your neighbor would react to that?
1: Well, I you know I talked I talked to my neighbors about about this, and they sort of uh, say the way they they don't necessarily internalize that as something that uh, they can do anything about. Uh, they they just sort of say, "Well, things are crazy. I mean, everything's crazy. The pandemic is crazy, and it's just sort of gets shrugged off." How about you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do. You know, both of us, I'm sure, we we get asked this question: "Is it real? Is it happening?" Um, I do like that phrase, "global weirding." I also try to get folks to think about, you know, how, how is this affecting their own lives? And and I think that now more than ever, especially here in California, you can really see this connection that we're, you know, you have these fires and we have this air pollution, we have these heat extremes, and we know that this is what the climate models were projecting. So, you know, I, I think it is, a, it is something that as scientists and science educators, I think that personally, I feel like, oh, it's, it's great if we get the opportunity to share some of this with friends and neighbors. And, you know, like a few days ago, you know, our skies up here turned orange for the day. Our solar panels only produced about a third of the energy they normally did. And, you know, I had to leave my indoor lights on all day because it was basically dark. In Southern California, have you How, what's your life been like over the last
1: couple of weeks? Well, I saw all the crazy pictures from the Bay area and was just sort of just shocked at how things looked there because it's uh, definitely got a little bit darker here. And I know that on the weekend morning, everybody in our house woke up an hour later than they usually do. And we sort of looked around and was like, what happened there? Uh, But it just was so much, uh, so much darker than usual. Uh, But but not nearly. It's it's gray and dark, not orange like you've had up there.
0: Uh, It was certainly an interesting science phenomenon, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: So um, I try to pay attention to different perspectives around issues like the fires that we're experiencing right now. And, you know, there is this notion that the fires are due to poor land management and that we should invest our funds on preventing fires and not solely on fighting them. How how do we? What what do you think about this, Matt?
1: Well, I love the I love the emphasis on cause and effect here. Going back to let's treat the cause and not the effect, and there may be some some truth to that. I'm not really a forestry expert. I've certainly read some things and seen that maybe there's some impact on forestry or or forestry practices. But uh, you know, again, let's think about cause and effect, and let's go one cause further back uh, in the chain and look at what's really getting at this uh, and. And what's the cheapest way to get things is usually it's go back as far back in the chain as you can of that cause and effect. Don't treat the symptom. Don't treat the sort of short-term cause. Treat the long-term cause and treat it right. And that's where you're going to be saving money. So it's, yeah, I, I imagine that more money on forestry would help. I imagine that if we we thought through our forestry practices, maybe we could come up with some ways to minimize these crazy firestorms that we've been having. But when it comes down to it, these fires are... are really buttressed by climate change. And uh, we should be going back. And that's what's going to save us money. If we're worried about money, it's treating that cause, not the more, more close cause of, of forestry.
0: And thanks for reminding us about cause and effect, because I think <laughs> that uh, many of our teachers listening are perhaps having some of these conversations with their students as well. And so that's a, a great reminder. So Matt, as a scientist, when did you start becoming concerned about climate change? And, and what was the evidence that seemed most compelling to you?
1: Well, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of late to the game by some standards and early by others. It wasn't really until I was in graduate school, and I actually ended up doing some job talks. And one of the things they do when you, get, you interview for an academic job is they often ask you to do a teaching demo. And I was thinking, what could I do that would be a really great demo that really showed that I saw the impact of our science that really got students thinking about looking at data and asking questions. And, and so I put together essentially a, a bunch of overhead transparencies with uh, data awesome. showing temperature graphs and CO2 for different hemispheres and and basically trying to get students to look at this. And I started looking at it myself and saying, oh, my goodness, this is a really compelling story. Uh, there's something here. and And that really moved me forward personally uh, on things. How about you? You're, you're obviously a, a a meteorologist slash climate scientist. So what, where is your story?
0: Yeah, my story started uh, in ozone depletion in that that was the topic that the atmospheric scientists were studying, let's say, in the 90s, 80s and 90s. And so I had a, a postdoc at NASA Goddard and, and with a large group of scientists studying the ozone layer. But we kind of solved that problem. we We understood the human connection and that policy moved fairly swiftly uh, and followed the science and said, "Oh, we should do something about this and And there was the Montreal Protocol and further amendments that phased out ozone depleting chemicals. So I was in Australia still in the ozone group, and a lot of us were like, "Oh, what's next?" and, mm-hmm. and then climate climate change was was really starting. Um, we're starting to see. Records of temperature and and greenhouse gases, and and so I also, for me, I think the piece of evidence that really struck me was something called radiative forcing, which is kind of like an energy bookkeeping exercise, where you try to keep track of all the energy that's coming in from the sun and seeing what what happens to it, Um, and pretty nicely illustrates the human contribution compared to the contribution from natural things like volcanoes and like the sun. As you can see, really strongly that greenhouse gases are warming and that even though there's some aerosols that are cooling that the warming is much stronger so and i and some of my colleagues as well you know those were the lines of evidence that over time over a decade or so convinced all all of our colleagues that that this is mm-hmm. happening this is important so as a as an educator matt when you train teachers about the science of climate change you know where where do we start with this
1: it's a good question, right? It's it's a very good question. I'm I'm sort of trying to think, uh, you know, how do we dig into such a big problem? And and even though I've been trying to think about it for a while, it's uh it is it's, it's a challenging one to really think about. But uh, you know, the way that the way that the NGSS starts at it is is really thinking about first in general establishing that at the elementary level that we we make human impacts. Humans have an impact on the world around us, um, and then the next level up is we take a look at some of the specific things that we know about the ways that humans affect the atmosphere and how much we affect it and you know we we try and really give a sense of the scale of this you know uh, you can help me out here with my numbers but you know we've there's a there's a certain amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and we've punched in how many tons do we put in a year it's a, it's a, it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot
0: yeah so, you know, we started at 280 parts per million and we're we're over 400 today.
1: Yeah, so I mean, we're we're getting dangerously close to literally doubling the amount that has has uh has been around in the atmosphere normally uh and that's a, it's a you know, it's a, the atmosphere covers the entire earth. So there's a lot of stuff that we're that we're belching out into there. And so once you start thinking about that scale and then the physics of what greenhouse gases do. And we talk about the energy balance, just like you were talking about, about radi- radiative forcing and energy coming in and energy going out and looking at some of the very simplest ways of looking at that. Just, okay, there's some light that reflects off and we we do that energy balance. And then we start seeing what happens when you add that extra blanket of CO2 on there and that all works. And then you check and see, does what, is that what's actually happening on earth? And we start looking at the correlation between CO2 and temperature. And so we start to start, start building this up from multiple directions of the what did the data show, what are the physics that we know about, and putting those two things together. And we can slowly start getting into the really, really rich things that we start to get to by high school with feedback mechanisms and all sorts of crazy stuff that's going on there.
0: Well, you nicely described, um, I've been involved in some professional trainings of teachers around climate change, and you did a nice job, that of outlining some of the topics that we covered and yet even in a one-week summer program on climate science where we're you know doing some of the content but then also talking about you know what does this look like in the classroom it is a big subject and so i'm wondering you know what did ngss do with climate change and how is it similar or different from previous standards
1: um, I'm trying to remember what the what our california nineteen ninety eight standard said about climate change, but it um it was relatively inconsequential in in many ways. It was just yet another fact you could learn about uh things and uh it wasn't quite the same what What was done with the n g s s is really quite beautiful, especially when you start thinking i'm going i'm going to move us to high school and really look at what's happening in the high school level. Basically, we look at climate change in every one of our other disciplines and the role that those other disciplines play in understanding climate change. So you look at life science and biology, and we're looking at how ecosystems are responding to changing climate dynamics and how that changes the ecosystem dynamics. We look at how that drives evolution and adaptation and how climate change over in the past has has done things and fossil evidence. So very all sorts of very rich pieces of information that we can get from the life science side of things. In the physical science side of things, with physics in particular, uh, we really focus on the solution side. There's so many options that you have for looking at uh, you know, both how a solar cell works and how, how we can get energy from solar cells, hydroelectric power and, uh, and wind power. And how does that energy conversion work? Uh, so we can really get over there and even nuclear power if you're if that's your your flavor of energy that you like. But uh, there's a really big opportunity for really tying all of those physics standards, if you will, the physics core ideas yeah. in with with what we do about climate. And then Earth science is, of course, all about uh, all about <laughs> this, is, this is what's going on with our Earth system and, and all those interconnected uh, relationships that are happening that uh, that we talked about some of that complexity of how. How things that are happening in in the ocean affect the atmosphere and and vice versa, which is also a a subject that you can talk about in chemistry. It's maybe not so Mm -hmm. much directly climate change, but we talk a lot about things like ocean acidification, which is also related to CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, And so you can basically take every one of our disciplines and... Teach everything you need to know. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you can teach so much of it by just looking at the climate change problem because it's so complex. There's a one little piece of that problem that's for for everybody, really.
0: Yeah. This um, in December we we did a, a workshop with a private school here in San Jose area. That's they had some climate change champion teachers, and they wanted us to help their high school uh, shift that exactly what you just said. Like you know all these core subjects and physics and chemistry in um life science um how do we integrate climate change into that so we spent a day doing that and then there were all these plans and then the (laughs) pandemic hit and uh you know it was tough but um but we're hoping to continue that that and i think that's a nice way for us to think about you know that's like providing a educational experience for students with a real strong context Can we talk about how we prepared students for that? And I was looking at the middle school standards, and there's one in particular that's directly related to climate change. I think it's ESS 3-5. that says, ask questions to clarify evidence of the factors that have caused the rise in global temperature over the past century. So it's fun for us to be able to ask Matt a question about one of the standards. Matt, can you talk us through this standard? Because it's kind of an interesting standard to me.
1: It is, and it's um, it's uh, sort of to put this in perspective. In middle school, there there's not a big ask for middle schoolers to understand a lot about climate change yet. Um, that's not where NGSS is going. It's not even really getting into the a firm statement of cause and effect. And we can we can I think we you and I have have disagreed about whether this this really is is deep enough for what we should think our middle school students should do. But in terms of that developmental progression that the NGSS authors had in mind, they said, you know what, understanding climate change uh, is really complicated. We are going to save most of that for high school. That was their underlying principle. So what do they give to the, to the middle school students? What they want to do is uh, actually surprisingly, it's, it's a lot like what I did with, with my little overhead transparencies in my job talk is, uh, is to just be looking at some of the data looking at what's happened in the temperature in particular over the last century is what they they ask uh, about here so it's a relatively short time window we're not getting back into all the complexities of all the other things that have been going on and just saying huh i see the temperatures going up let's start making a list of all the things that could be causing that change in global temperature in the last 100 years 150 years or so and once we do that we can start looking for patterns looking for correlations and saying, hmm, I'm seeing CO2 is also going up. I wonder if that's causing it. Uh, what would I need to look at to really be more confident in that? And so we're trying to build a little bit of their question asking. But to be honest, uh, this, is, this particular standard's a little bit, uh, it, it sounds like asking questions is the performance expectation, but I don't feel like they've written it very well to actually get at asking those questions. That's not actually what they're that I don't feel like they're assessing that very well or, or setting it up to be assessed very well. Um, they really do want us just to just be, its really is looking at data and patterns and, um, and noticing correlations and things like that, that I think they're really doing a better job of setting it up based upon the structure that they've got.
0: Well, I'm interested that you say you're not like overly a big fan of this particular standard. What if we looked at the evidence statements that come with that standard? Would they help us better understand what we're supposed to be doing here?
1: Always. For those of our listeners that don't know about the evidence statements, these are published by the Achieve, the people that wrote the Next Generation Science Standards. And they usually are one to two pages. They take that performance expectation, which is kind of a box that's about you know, a couple inches tall on a page. And they turn that into one to two full pages of what did we mean by this standard? So always we go to the evidence statements uh, if you want to know what it is that they're trying to get at. Uh, and so if you if you look at this, you can you can I tell people just Google MS-ESS3-5 evidence statements. And you'll get this probably as your number one hit here. And for each one of these, because this is a question asking practice, they're, they're going to focus this in on some things related to asking questions, which is one, basing your question in a certain phenomenon, and then trying to tie that phenomenon to um, sort of basic underlying ideas in science. So that's how they've divided this one up here. The first is uh, students examine a given claim and the given supporting evidence as a basis for formulating questions. Students ask questions that would identify and clarify evidence, including, so that was all a bunch of complexity, but basically the idea is, this is what I was saying is, if you're looking at a data set about temperature and some other factor, you're saying, is this the thing that's causing it? Uh, so they give the example here, maybe uh, you're looking at uh, volcanic activity. Is it possible that volcanoes are causing what we're seeing here? And so you look at a graph showing how many volcanoes have erupted, how big the eruptions have been, and then the temperature increases and say, hmm, those two graphs don't look anything like each other. That's probably not a good match. And mm-hmm. so that's some of what they're trying to get you at, doing at here. They give information here about glaciers and Arctic ice, plant and animals, uh, seasonal movements and life cycle activities. Things like my favorite thing is cherry blossoms and looking at the timing of when cherry blossoms have, have opened in Japan for which they have very good records going back a thousand or so years. Uh, and looking at how that's changed with temperature and whether that correlates. It's really looking at these correlations here. And then the last one that they have there is about humans and human activity, and in particular carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases and trying to match those up.
0: Well, I I always find it interesting to look at the evidence statements. I'll be honest with you, Matt, and I've probably said this before, sometimes they scare me a little bit, like, you know, I like the one sentence standard, like, oh, you know, we're going to try to ask, you know, good questions about, or clarify evidence about factors that contribute to our rising global temperature. And then when we go into the nitty gritty of the evidence statements, you really do start to see what the authors are really looking for. But I agree that it's a good place to look to get some ideas of how you might put together some sequence of lessons to satisfy that standard. So is this standard enough, Matt, in terms of a student's understanding about climate change at, at this level in, in middle school?
1: Well, uh, you know, like I said, to satisfy, you can satisfy the standard simply getting to the end and saying, hmm, I think maybe something's the cause. Whereas uh, we at this point in, in time, Maybe that was where we were in, in science. Uh, I don't know how many years ago would that be, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, somewhere around in there. That's that's sort of where they left off with that. We kind of want our students to be ready to act a little bit more and seeing a little bit more of the direct impacts that they have on things. And so I'm not really sure that uh, that the NGSS authors have gotten us to that point quickly enough in the middle school standards. And I know that we've designed a lot with NGSS, or sorry, with the Green Ninja curriculum to really leap ahead and start off with that clear connection between human activities and climate change pretty early on such that we can start working on the whole middle school curriculum as let's think about solutions now and let's really focus on, on that aspect.
0: Yeah, and, you know, certainly human impact is part of NGSS, not just related to climate, but, you know, related to other areas. So I think you definitely see that even within the middle school standards in in other places. And then, you know, California, um, as you know well, Matt, has their own environmental principles and concepts. And how do you see those linking to the teaching of climate
1: change? Well, they they really support, you know, first of all, those people that don't know them, the environmental principles and concepts are state law that is kind of separate actually from the NGSS. They are a separate state mandate uh, from the legislature that all of us as educators need to really get people thinking about the interaction between humans and the environment, how humans depend upon the environment and how the environment changes as a result of what we do as humans. And so, you you can see sort of the precursors, the preamble to understanding climate change happening, even in the early elementary level, as we start looking at people make pollution, people make waste, and that is really emphasizing those sorts of things about really the tracing. It's It ties into the NGSS uh, cross-cutting concept of tracing matter, but the environmental principles and concepts ask us to explicitly teach our students the matter that you have, It doesn't ever go away you can't get rid of it Uh, and when you as give off some sort of waste it goes somewhere into the environment and it has an impact on the environment and we teach that from the very earliest ages in california because of these environmental principles and concepts and so once you lay that foundation in literally in kindergarten where they're looking at blue blue recycling bins versus trash bins and and seeing okay my trash goes somewhere then you start thinking about my tailpipe goes somewhere by the time you get into you know later elementary school and and getting to what we were talking about in middle school uh is that really seeing that connection of there's no there's no uh there's no getting rid of stuff and that when we as humans give off things they go somewhere
0: yeah that's a that's a good energy and matter cross getting concept that uh about where stuff goes and you know today we are in this situation where our weather and, and air quality are so poor. And I have heard teachers tell me that sometimes their students you know, start to worry or, or get feel very you know, uncomfortable or afraid about when they start to learn about the role that humans are having on our climate and on our environment. So could this be too early to introduce this with students or are they kind of already like, they're already experiencing this. And so how do we like, is there, when you think about this, Matt, how do we uh, approach this in a way that students can kind of deal with?
1: Yeah, well, I would I would start off with the assumption that there is an age that is too early for us to really get into all of the possible impacts of things, and so we have to figure out when do we start when do we start introducing this and. Probably that middle school transition is a, is a time when we're starting to be able to deal with bigger picture issues, bigger things. We lay the foundations very carefully. Like I said, kids can understand that pollution makes us sick in early elementary, but going beyond that into all the details of how bad this can be and and what are the what are the climate projections and things like that, uh, we want to make sure that we're saving some of those aspects of things until a little bit later. Especially once we can start introducing their their power, showing them their their ability to make change to prevent those problems um I think that's the time when they're starting to be capable of understanding the solutions that we can also really be a little bit more detailed and rich about the nature of the problems
0: yeah i I would agree with that too because our our experience at least from hearing from teachers is that it makes it a little bit easier for students. And I think for all humans, once we realize we can have an impact or that we can make some type of change in our own community, have some agency. And certainly that's been our philosophy uh, with our work at Green Ninja is trying to help students see that they have a role, and that they can can make a difference. And I think probably both of you and I have found that in our own teaching, that it's you could talk about the problems the whole semester, but to engage students and to give them some some hope and also to help improve their science literacy by giving them an avenue for using that science to create change, that that can be helpful. Okay, let's shift our our attention to our final segment, Matt, where we talk about a topic we both enjoy, which is burritos. And as we've spoken about in the past, we know that not all burritos are created equal based on the ingredients and the environmental impact associated with growing and transporting the food and the stuff inside our, um, our tortillas. But I don't think we've discussed much about cooking burritos. And Matt, do you have an ideal way that you cook a burrito?
1: Oh, um, well, I, it's, it's the parts of the burrito that I guess you don't really cook a burrito, do you?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a good, good point. I mean, I guess the reason I'm asking is because, um, you know, this recent air pollution episode has got me looking at uh, not just the air quality outside, but inside. And I have this air quality device from our friends at Pocket Lab. It's a nice company here in San Jose, and they measure this little device measures CO two, ozone, PM two point five, and there's a bunch of great experiments we can do with these portable devices. And for folks who are using Green Ninja this year, these data gathering devices are now part of your materials kits. So that's um, cool. Yeah, it is really nice. We're really happy I want to be one. working with them. Yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> we should send you one. Um, and you know, these these folks they use the same instrumentation as the popular purple air sensors. So it's a really high quality low cost sensor but they're super portable they fit in your pocket so you can travel around with them and so I have one that I've been you know going outside and measuring the air quality but I was shocked to find that my indoor air was really not that much better when the numbers were like the air quality index 250 outside we were like you know 200 or 190 wow
1: That's really surprising. I I thought we were safe inside.
0: (laughs) I I thought so too. And so this got me thinking about indoor air quality. And then I started to do some reading. And, you know, there's lots of scientists who have been looking at indoor air quality. And one of the things they've mentioned among, you know, of course they say when the air quality is not good outside, it's probably not so good inside either. But they also talk about cooking. And uh, so that kind of leads us full circle to, you know, what should we think about when cooking burritos at home? and yeah that would be the ingredients are you yeah. you know i guess uh i guess Maz, it's safe to say you're not deep frying your burritos at home regularly <laughs> like making chimichangas or something
1: no not usually but i mean certainly gl- globally i don't know if people have heard all about the f- impacts of of cook stove technology and how really uh, so many people uh, have their lives shortened because they're cooking with stoves that are inside their homes without real good chimneys and the the smoke is terrible and it's a huge problem in developing countries and and there have been some amazing transformative things that have happened when you start introducing solar power for lighting. Uh, that reduces a lot of a lot of air pollution at certain times and then also more advanced cooking technology. So admittedly, any of the options that we have in our in our kitchens here in California. Are way better than the global options that we have available to us that billions of people are facing uh, and their indoor air pollution problems. But with that said, I've definitely been working. I haven't yet done this, but I, I'm looking at uh, these induction stoves, which are an electric stove uh, as part of an electrification thing. And I have a great video that I just found uh, on YouTube, and we'll, maybe we can put a link to this somewhere. But it shows uh, it's a it's a race. It's a race between a gas burner a um a induction stove and a regular traditional electric stove. And they put the same amount of water on each of these three things mm-hmm. and see which one boils fastest. Now all of them use about the same number of BTUs per hour, the same number of kilowatts of energy, but the amount of time it takes to boil a you know pot of water is remarkably different. I don't know if I want to spoil it for everybody, but but uh <laughs> Man, the induction stove is less than half the time, I believe, of the, of, the, um, of the regular traditional electric stove and maybe 50% shorter or so than a gas burner. So I haven't used it one ever, but I'm looking forward to that opportunity. And of course, the induction stove has no, they, they, they run on electricity. They have no internal fumes, uh, no partial combustion products that uh, invade your home as it doesn't quite burn totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be the right way to uh, cook things. I, I don't know for sure, but uh, certainly I'm going to give one a try.
0: Oh, yay. We got, we got an induction stove a few years ago when we electrified our home, and I will say that we did some, I mean, I know I'm a, like you, Matt, I'm a data nerd. We did the water boil test with, uh, actually, we were trying different pot sizes because, mm. you know, there's some magnetic stuff going on um, with your pot, and so if we have a small pot, doesn't have as much surface area and it seemed to boil a lot slower than a bigger pot, which I think, you know, it's interesting. But um, we also have been thinking about our indoor air quality in relationship to cooking because we actually don't have a strong fan to mm. take away some of, the, um, some of the aerosols that are coming. So there is stuff to learn, it seems like, about cooking at home and having one of these Pocket Lab air devices or any kind of air quality device, whether you're using it outside or inside, or in your classroom, and I think the classroom would be a great place to start to monitor air quality, would be a great way to engage students around energy and matter, where where are things, what's in the air, um, where they come from, and what does it mean? So yeah, and if you can bring in burritos in that conversation, all the better. Uh, All the better. Yeah. So anyhow, I think that's a great place for us to stop. Thanks for joining us at Ask Matt, where we explore NGSS, science education and the environment with education expert and nice guy, Matthew Delasio. Thanks, Matt, for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Eugene, and stay cool.
0: Okay, see you next time.
1: Bye-bye.